I'd like to read to you from Psalm 71 before we get back to 2 Chronicles 16. You just listen to these words and let them soak in, let them sink in this morning. Psalm 71. It's been called a psalm for an older faith. In you, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In your righteousness, deliver me and rescue me. Incline your ear to me and save me. Be to me a rock of habitation to which I may continually come. You have given commandment to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Rescue me, O my God, out of the hand of the wicked, out of the grasp of the wrongdoer and ruthless man. For you are my hope. O Lord God, you are my confidence from my youth. By you I have been sustained from my birth. You are he who took me from my mother's womb. My praise is continually of you. I become a marvel to many, for you are my strong refuge. My mouth is filled with your praise and with your glory all day long. Do not cast me off in the time of old age. Do not forsake me when my strength fails. For my enemies have spoken against me, and those who watch for my life have consulted together, saying, God has forsaken him. Pursue and seize him, for there is no one to deliver. O God, do not be far from me. O my God, hasten to my help. Let those who are adversaries of my soul be ashamed and consumed. Let them be covered with reproach and dishonor who seek to injure me. But as for me, I will hope continually, and I will praise you yet more and more. My mouth shall tell of your righteousness and of your salvation all day long, for I do not know the sum of them. I will come with the mighty deeds of the Lord God. I will make mention of your righteousness, yours alone. O God, you have taught me from my youth, and I still declare your wondrous deeds. And even when I'm old and gray, O God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. For your righteousness, O God, reaches to the heavens. You who have done great things, O God, who is like you, you who have shown me many troubles and distresses, will revive me again and will bring me up again from the depths of the earth. May you increase my greatness and turn to comfort me. I will also praise you with a harp, even your truth, O my God. To you I will sing praises with the lyre, O Holy One of Israel. My lips will shout for joy when I sing praises to you, and my soul which you have redeemed. My tongue will also utter your righteousness all the day long. For they are ashamed, for they are humiliated, who seek my hurt. Father, we pray that even when we are old and gray, O God, do not forsake us until we declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. Father, we pray that your spirit of encouragement, wisdom, strength, empowerment, your Holy Spirit, Lord, will be at work in and among us today. I pray, Father, for hearts that are dying, that they might be revived. And for hearts that are weary, that they might be lifted up. And I pray, Father, for the encouragement of your Spirit to fill up this place, to fill up our hearts, to fill up our minds, our thoughts, Father. 
that the lives we're living now would be lives that continue to grow in righteousness, to shine, Father, ever brighter, and to be of great value to You, even in our small ways in the kingdom. Lord, we praise You. We thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the way that You speak to us and how You teach us. We pray, Father, that Your words would not fall on deaf ears this morning, but would enliven us and, Father, lead us forward. Not just in deeper relationship with You, but as lights shining in the universe in a dark and depraved world. Speak to us now, Spirit of God. Teach us. May we truly hear you. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Or in 2 Chronicles 16, if you'd like to turn over there, 2 Chronicles 16. Last week we looked at the life of Asaw, the king of Judah, king of the first revival that happened in Judah. We stopped at the end of chapter 15, and uh, this morning we get the rest of the story. We get the follow-on to what happened to King Asa and Judah later in his life. And that's the issue really at hand this morning, is later in life. And it's what I want to consider, it's what uh, the Lord's really put on my heart, I've been thinking about this all week long. You know, sociologists will tell us that those born in 1964 are the very last of the boomer generation. 1946 roughly to 1964 is that generation of people called the baby boomers. Coming out of World War II, a lot of the babies that were born right after that as the GIs were coming home and growing up in that era, an interesting era. And in 2008, the first of that generation, the boomers, that is my generation, having been born in 1964 at the very tail end of this, reached the age of retirement at age 62. Now, if the Lord delays His return in just 17 years, the last of my generation will reach reach retirement age of 62. That's me. And in just 17 years, my youngest son will be graduating from high school. I'm still trying to wrap my mind around that concept. Here are some quotes from some older men of a previous generation. The generation actually previous to the boomer generation. George Burns said, You know you're getting old when you stoop to tie your shoelaces and wonder what else you can do while you're down there. He also said, When I was a boy, the Dead Sea wasn't even sick. (laughs) Bob Hope said, I don't feel old. I don't feel anything until noon and then it's time for my nap. Kurt Vonnegut said... True terror is to wake up one morning and discover that your high school class is running the country. And Herbert Hoover said, Blessed are the young, for they shall inherit the national debt. Some true wisdom there. What does the Bible say about aging and growing older? What can we learn from from the Word of God about how we are to go about this this process of aging? It's going to happen to all of us. That's the one thing that that I laugh about in my own heart is when when younger people make fun of of aging or make fun of, for example, me losing hair. I just smile and take it all in because I know they're going to hit the same thing. 
When they make fun of the gray that's beginning to appear on my temples, I laugh and say, it's coming. It's coming. It is unavoidable. No amount of Botox in the world can change that fact. Again, contrary to popular belief, age does not always guarantee wisdom. Life experience does not guarantee maturity or even a mature faith. Listen to this verse. We're coming up to the book of Job. In fact, I'm hoping that we'll be in Job by the beginning of the new year, Lord willing. And in the book of Job, it's a fascinating story. And you may know something about it. Job, a man who has everything and then loses everything. And it's a test of his faith throughout this amazing book about how he clings to the Father and, and what he learns in the process. Four people speak to Job at the outset of the book, his wife, who's the complete moron, biblically speaking, and three friends. Each one of these three friends come up and they speak to him. And they're all wrong. That's something you need to understand about Scripture. Just because you pull out a single verse, it may not be the right direction. Because there are quotes in Scripture of people who are telling others to do the wrong thing. There are examples of Scripture of people doing the wrong thing. If we pull that out and say, well, see, this is how I'm going to live by. This verse right here. Hey, be careful. I don't know what the context is. But there is one man, a fifth person in the story of Job, who comes up in Job 32 and begins to speak to Job. And he is the youngest of the friends of Job. Listen to what he says. His name is Elihu. He says, I thought age should speak. And increased years should teach wisdom. But it is a spirit in man, and the breath of the Almighty gives them understanding. The abundant in years may not be wise, nor may elders understand justice. Now see, I would have agreed with Elihu. I would have thought that age should speak. And in some cases it very well should. But it is not age that guarantees wisdom. And it's not years or mileage that guarantees that you're someone who should be listened to. In fact, sadly, in many cases, what we have faith for in our youth, we lose faith for as the miles grow long behind us. And so, that's led some to make statements, and I'm not sure if it was Buddy Holly who said this. I'm pretty sure Kurt Cobain noted this in his suicide note several years ago. It's better to burn out than just fade away. Well, I submit to you that there's a third option. Not just burn out or fade away. How about grow brighter? How about shine more as the years go on? How about instead of heading into the shadows and settling, shining brighter because the righteousness of the Lord is poured out in you? There's a verse for that, Proverbs 4.18. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn. Think about that. It's like the light of dawn. What happens when dawn breaks? It gets brighter and brighter and brighter. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the full day. So the question is, as you age, as you grow older, wherever you are in life, are you shining brighter? Or are you fading away? Is the righteousness of God stronger in you today than it was ten years ago? Or are you settling for the shadows? King Asa's story to me is a sad one, and I hate to tell you that, but it is. It starts out so well. As a youth, as a young king, he has strong faith, but his faith fades with age. Last week, when we looked at chapters 14 and 15 of 2 Chronicles, we see a man of great faith, trusting in the Lord. And because he trusted in the Lord, 
Because he returned the people to the Word. Because he was aware of the things of God, revival broke out throughout Judah. But we get to chapter 15 and things are a bit different. You may recall the faith of his youth back in chapter 14. You look at this if you'd like to. uh, Verse 11. In the midst of an attack from Ethiopia's million-man army, and Esau had only 550,000, so half as many men, he's in the middle of this attack. What does he do? He cries out to the Lord. He says, Lord, there's no one beside you to help in the battle between the powerful and those who have no strength. Well, who are the powerful there? It's the Ethiopians. Who are those who have no strength? It's Judah. He says, so help us, Lord our God, for we trust in you. Then in your name we've come out against this multitude. Oh, Lord, you are God. Let not man prevail against you. Vastly outnumbered, Esau reaches up to the Lord saying, let not man prevail against you, Lord. A great moment of faith. A man burning brightly in faith. Think about the people, the army who was around Esau when he prayed this prayer. How exhilarating for them to hear that. How exulting, how lifting up for them to hear their commander and their king reach out to God and cry out and say, You alone are God. And they can go, Yeah, yeah, He is. And so faith was mustered right there on the battlefield and God comes to their defense. And it went on to cultivate a great revival as we talked about last week. Asah removed the idols and restored the altar and regathered the people, reinstated the offerings and returned to the covenant. All these wonderful things and this move of faith and this great revival. Second Chronicles chapter 15, verse 15. It tells us that all Judah rejoiced concerning the oath for they had sworn with their whole heart and had sought him earnestly and he, that is the Lord, let them find him for the Lord gave them rest on every side. And verse 19 tells us, And there was no more war until the 35th year of Asa's reign. That's 25 years later. The first 10 years saw a time of peace. And then the Ethiopians attacked. And then they turned to the Lord. Revival breaks out across the land. And for 25 years, there's peace in Judah. Why? Because the people trusted the Lord. Because they went to the Lord. Until until the 35th year of his reign, and that's when things began to fall apart. There are two areas we'll look at this morning in which King Assad does not age well. Two things I believe we can learn from. You may note these. Number one, the decline of divine defense. The decline of divine defense. Chapter 16, verse 1. In the 36th year of Asa's reign, Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and fortified Ramah in order to prevent anyone from going out or coming in to Asa, the king of Judah. Now, Baasha, he's a king of Israel, one of the many wicked, messed up kings of the northern kingdom. In fact, Baasha's name means wicked. So this wicked king comes down from the north. He goes against, literally taking the ten northern tribes against their southern brothers, in the tribe of Judah and Benjamin there. And he makes a provocative move at Ramah. It's that border town between Judah and Israel. It's about six to eight miles or so north of Jerusalem. Ramah there, you know it as Ramallah today. It's the kind of headquarters of the Palestinian Authority. But Esau, who saw the defeat of a million-man army of Ethiopians in his younger days, is now shaken. Baasha hasn't even attacked. He's just fortified. He's just kind of cut off supply lines. He's trying to squeeze the the tribe of Judah, the kingdom of Judah. 
And experience tells us all King Esau had to do in this moment was pray. He did it on the battlefield in severe danger, crying out to the Lord. Now he declines the divine defense. He doesn't seek the Lord. Have you ever been there? Have you ever experienced the strong defense of the Lord? Maybe in your youth. Maybe you had a great experience with God, but it was 10, 20, 30 years ago. And now, when trouble and struggle hits you in your life, you look back and go, well, that was then. And, you know, things worked out, but maybe I was just foolish to believe. But maybe it really wasn't the Lord after all. Maybe it was just circumstances. I don't know who I can trust now. Well, don't feel so alone if you've ever felt that way. Abraham did. Called the father of the faithful... Abraham receives a word from the Lord. Genesis 15.1 The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. I got you covered, buddy. Front and back. I am your shield. And yet, later in his life, when Abe and, and Sarah, his wife, went down to a place called Gerar, he lied to King Abimelech, saying that Sarah's not my wife. She's my sister. Why fear? He was afraid if they knew she was his wife that they might take his life for she was a beautiful woman and they might want her for, her for himself. So he lies. There's no faith there. I mean, come on, Abraham. God said he'd be your shield. And if he's your shield, then he's going to protect you regardless of the situation. But even Abraham, older in life, has experienced a little reality. And when reality sets in as we age, sometimes faith takes a beating. Sometimes we look around at circumstance and go, <laughs> look at it this way. I was talking to Rob Billa last week, and he was talking about going up and going mountain biking. And he said, to do the mountain biking, to, to really do it effectively, you need to not think about what you're doing. you just got to go. <laughs> because if you stop and think about it, you know how many bad things can happen to you. And the older you get, the more you know that. Isn't that true? If I get on a bike and ride down to the end of my driveway, I know what can happen to me now. As a kid, I didn't even think about it. You get on the bike, you go. But now, I've had enough life circumstance, I know what the potholes are. And I know what it feels like to break bones. More seriously, I know what it's like to have my spirit hurt. And so we tend to flinch a little bit more when we get older. Or sometimes we don't engage in the battle at all because, man, I did before and it was a little painful. I don't want to go there. Reality sets in. It did for Abram. It did for Esau. The older we get, the more we think about things before we leap. We recognize our vulnerabilities in ways that we didn't when we were invincible teenagers. I could do anything at the age of 16, 17, 18. Things I did then that I would not begin to do now. But what's amazing, gang, is at the time we need the defense of the Lord more than ever... Practicality and rationality come settling in and can override our faith. And I believe that's what's going on with King Esau. Look at verse 2. Then Esau brought out silver and gold from the treasuries of the house of the Lord and the king's house and sent them to Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, that is Syria in the north, who lived in Damascus, saying, Let there be a treaty between you and me as between my father and your father. Behold, I sent you silver and gold. Go break your treaty with Baasha, king of Israel, so that he will withdraw from me. So Ben-Hadah listened to King Esau and went and sent the commanders of his armies against the cities of Israel, and they conquered Ejon, Dan, Abel-Maim, and all the store cities of Naphtali. Well, when Baasha heard of it, he ceased fortifying Ramah and stopped his works. 
And then King Asah brought all Judah, and they carried away the stones of Ramah and its timber which Baasha had been building. And with them he fortified Gabah and Mizpah. What's going on here? Well, he was victorious. It worked. He used his mind. He thought it through. And he realized, you know, if I can, if I can pay off Ben-Hadad to the north of Israel, get him on my side, I can save my kingdom here from the attack or from the fortifications of Baasha. He allied himself with Ben-Hadad of Syria. That's ironic. It's ironic because Ben-Hadad's name means son of a false god. (laughs) What was the thing that, that King Asad did that kicked off the revival in Judah? He removed the false gods. He removed all the idols. Now he's making an alliance with the son of a false god. He's not going to the Lord. He's actually going in the other direction, grabbing a hold of a man who may have strength, who may have power, who may have something he needs. He's paying him off and saying, come on, protect me, help me, defend me. And it's a stupid thing to do. Verse 7 going on. At that time, Hanani the seer came to Esau, king of Judah. And he said to him, Because you have relied on the king of Aram and have not relied on the Lord your God, therefore the army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. Were not the Ethiopians and the Lubim an immense army? By the way, Lubim, that's the Libyans. Were not the Ethiopians and the Libyans an immense army with very many chariots and horsemen? Yet, because you relied on the Lord, He delivered them into your hand. Don't you remember what happened here? Hanani offers a little historical review for Asa to think about. Dude, victory was yours in a far tougher situation, the prophet says, because you trusted in the Lord. What changed in Asa? Well, he was older. 25 years older. He had more so-called life experience, but what he's lacking here is spiritual maturity. Asah is now short on the wisdom that comes only through faith. Ecclesiastes 4.13 tells us, A poor yet wise lad is better than an old and foolish king who no longer knows how to receive instruction. Asah has now replaced the divine divine defense with self-defense. I'm going to look out for me. And I'm going to make whatever alliances I need to make to look out for me and protect me. And it's not the wisdom that comes from faith. And it is not the maturity of the Lord. King Asah is becoming a foolish old man. King, the Lord wants to defend you. He has offered to defend me. And the only thing that gets in the way of divine defense is our own pride and arrogance and lack of maturity. Psalm 27 verse 1 says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. My salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the defense of my life. Whom shall I dread? Military personnel, take note of that, please. The Lord is the defense of my life. This was written by one of the greatest warriors in all of history. David, a fighting man himself. And yet he knew where the true strength was. It was not in his rifle. It was not in his magazines. It was not in his strategy or his ability to fight. It was always for David in the Lord. Verse 9 going on. Hanani says, For the eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the, the earth, that he may strongly support those whose heart is completely his. That is a great verse to memorize, to underline. 
nations to seed into your heart. The eyes of the Lord move to and fro throughout the earth that He may strongly support those whose heart is completely His. But ironically, when we become self-defensive or seek protection anywhere but in the Lord, the ultimate outcome is never good. We think, we rationalize that we can protect ourselves. And it doesn't work. We end up worse off than we would have if we'd accepted and believed in the defense of the Lord. Note what Hanani told Asa back in verse 7. He said, The army of the king of Aram has escaped out of your hand. So you made this alliance to protect yourself against the immediate threat. But the greater threat, Syria, now is out of your hands. For 25 years, the Lord had protected Judah against Syria. The Lord's defense kept Syria at bay so that there was no problem, no fight, no hassle. And now, for the last three years of King Esau's life, there's going to be nothing but war. Because he made a human alliance rather than maintaining a spiritual alliance. Hmm. Hanani says, the last part of verse 9, you have acted foolishly in this. Indeed, from now on, you will surely have wars. Asa's alliance with Ben-Hadad undermines the Shakat of revival. You remember Shakat from last week? It means quiet. Quiet revival for 25 years now is replaced with the shouts of war. Would you like to have the support of God? Is this something you desire? To know the strength of the Lord is truly yours. That God is on your side. It's very simple. Drop your self-defense. Stop fighting for yourself and trust the defense of the Lord. Here's something to consider. We prayed about this earlier. Our faith saves us. And we know that to be true. Faith in the grace of God, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's faith in His grace that begins this whole thing for us. We are saved from the moment we believe in Jesus, from the moment we entrust our life to Him. We are a saved people. But unfortunately, many people, many Christians, end up like Asah. Faith at first, self-defense later. Start out in wonderful, bright, glorious belief, but then fade away. Why is that? Why is it that I, and I have seen this and I experienced this? But why is it in the church that we see, from time to time, people who have been Christians 40, 30, 40 or 50 years... But they're just kind of not doing anything anymore. And and I'm not harping on any of you. But why is it that people start brightly? You know the old phrase, well, the youth are, you know, they're the church of the next generation. They're they're really the, the, we're going to invest in the kids. What, are you done? I've said before, if you're still breathing, you're not done, gang. You're still here. God has something He wants you to accomplish. Otherwise, He'd say, okay, you're not accomplishing anything. Come on home. He's got work for you to do. Beginning with faith, ending with self-defense, but listen to what Paul wrote. Romans chapter 1, verse 16 said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. But listen, he goes on and says, For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. What does that mean? From faith to faith. It means we begin with faith and then we live in faith. We don't begin with faith and then kind of sit back and quit. You start with faith and the faith grows like the dawn. The righteousness that's like the dawn that grows brighter and brighter until the full day. And gang, the full day is when Jesus comes. 
So our call is to grow and grow and grow. Faith to faith to faith to faith in the Lord. And not to settle. Not to fade away. But a saw, unfortunately, is a picture of a man who moves from faith to foolishness to frustration. Look at verse 10. Then Esau was angry with the seer and put him in prison. (laughs) For he was enraged at him for this. And Esau oppressed some of the people at the same time. Esau, what's going on, man? Leader of a great revival, now you're imprisoning the prophet and, and you're getting on the case of the people? What's happening here? How can you respond this way? Well, he knew Hanani was right. He knew the seer, the seer nailed him. And it angered him. It ticked him off. So instead of repenting, he's venting. <laughs> instead of making it right, he's taking it out on the people. And on Hanani. But he's got another problem. It's not just the declining divine defense. But it's the deterioration of disease. Look at verse 11. Now the acts of Esau from first to last, behold, they are written in the book of the kings of Judah and Israel. Verse 12. In the 39th year of his reign, Esau became diseased in his feet. His disease was severe, yet even in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. So Esau slept with his fathers, having died in the 41st year of his reign. They buried him in his own tomb, which he had cut out for himself in the city of David. And they laid him in the resting place, which he had filled with spices of various kinds, blended by the perfumer's art. And they made a very great fire for him. That doesn't mean that he was uh, fried or burned up. What what is that? Cremated. Thank you. (laughs) He wasn't cremated, as evidenced by the verse prior to that or before that that he was laid in a resting place they just made a big bonfire to honor him at that time this is really sad here's a man of great strength in the Lord as a young man trusting in the Lord for military strength defense might the whole deal and he declines divine defense and now the deterioration of disease is what kills him later in life and what's ironic is Asa's name means physician His very name means physician. Some have questioned whether or not because of his name he truly was a doctor himself. Maybe he was. Maybe that's why he didn't trust the Lord when illness came. Because he had already been trained in the art of medicine. And so he's thinking that's the route to go. And he doesn't seek the Lord. But you need to understand it's very specific in the word here. It's not just that he went to a doctor. and There's no problem with that. He went to the doctor and did not seek the Lord. He made a choice here. Well... Pastor, are you saying we shouldn't go to a doctor? No. I'm not saying you shouldn't. In fact, that might be foolish. But you shouldn't go to the doctor to the exclusion of going to the Lord. It's not an either or. It's a both and. We don't trust doctors over the great physician, Jesus Christ. He is the first place to which we turn. The first one we go to. You still go to a doctor. Paul wrote to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5.23, he said, No longer drink water exclusively, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Wait a minute, Paul. Shouldn't you be telling Timothy to go to the Lord? Yes, he does, over and over through the rest of the letter. You know, But in this case, he says, Take a little wine for your stomach, because it will help, buddy. If they'd had Pepto-Bismol back then, Paul would have said, Take some Pepto-Bismol. You know, down some Malox. You know, take some Prilosec, dude. That'll help your stomach, and then you can go on about the work of the Lord. James 5.14, and I want you to listen to this, because I ran across something interesting to me. 
James says, Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. You know, you can make a really legitimate case here that James is pointing to both prayer and medicine when he says this. Prayer and medicinal treatment. That anointing with oil in this verse is not a spiritual thing. Now, now stay with me here, because some of you might go, huh, what? It's not a spiritual thing, but it is a medicinal thing. Rick, where do you get that? The Greek word for a spiritual anointing in the New Testament is creo. It's where we get the word Christ, the anointed, creo. It's used in 1 Corinthians 12, talking about the gifts of the Spirit that are anointings of the Spirit. And so that kind of anointing, that's what that word, that's not the word James uses here. When he says, call for the elders of the church there to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. It, it's not creo. The Greek word here is elepsantes. Well, what does that mean, Rick? It means a medicinal oil rub. Well, that's interesting. James doesn't say anoint with oil. He says give a medicinal rub down. Now, don't worry, I'm not suggesting our shepherds begin going around offering Swedish massage along with their prayers. Okay. Some of you would be like, oh. And I don't, I'm not trying to debate, debate the value of anointing in oil in prayer. The truth is, however you take it, whether the oil is medicinal or you think of it in spiritual terms, James declares that it must be applied in the name of the Lord. And please understand this. Anointing with oil, gang, the power is not in the oil anyway. The power is in the Spirit. The one who anoints. The oil is just a picture. It's like taking communion. The power is not in the cracker or the juice. The power is in what it represents, the crucifixion of of Christ, the cross of Jesus. That's what it's about. And the oil is representative of what the Spirit is doing in a powerful way beyond anything that we can do in the physical. At a minimum, what I'm saying here is when you seek medical help, go in the name of the Lord. Seek prayer as well. And the prayer offered in faith, James says, will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. But Asah doesn't just need a podiatrist here. He needs a cardiologist. Because Asah has a heart problem. There's no prayer he chooses to call on the doctors. He chooses not to call on the Lord. Foolish old man. Foolish old man. Why doesn't he pray? Why at this point in his life does Asah choose not to call on the name of the Lord? I wonder if he's harboring resentment. One of this foolish old man is angry and embittered. He had peace for 25 years. And then all I did was make an alliance with a guy up north and suddenly I've got war on my hands again. That's not fair, Lord. Am I reading too much into this? Possibly. (laughs) But his once peaceful rule now is messed up with constant battle. And he's got some kind of foot disease that's got him completely laid out. So maybe he's just decided I'm not taking the counsel of the Lord anymore. If this is what my life is going to look like, God, if this is what you're going to allow to happen to me, then I just don't want to have anything to do with you. Have you ever heard anybody talk like that? Have you ever felt that way? If this is what I get, if this is what my life is going to look like after putting faith in you, well then, you can have your faith. 
I think that's right where Asa is. Blaming the Lord for his poor choices. Now I'm thankful none of you have ever done that. I have never done that. Blame the Lord for my poor choices. <laughs> you see, the longer we live, the more we have time to see the fallout of our foolishness. And the question is, are we going to approach that fallout with faith? Or are we going to approach that fallout with bitterness and blame? Seeking to push it off on someone else, even the Lord. For some, aging just allows time for bitterness and resentment. Foolish old man. Foolish old woman. Paul says in Ephesians 4.31, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. And be kind to one another and tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has also forgiven you. And there's the greater prescription. Prescription for the heart. God in Christ has forgiven you. What can you possibly hold against somebody else? If you know the Lord has forgiven you. Young and old alike, gang, the real disease that kills us is our sin. That's the real problem. It's why we need Jesus so desperately. It's why the gospel is our cry. Isaiah 53, verse 5, He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening of our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. So if Christ is in you, you have the divine healing. You have the divine defense. Well, it's sad to me that Asa's life ends this way. We find in Scripture that his last three years overlap with the first three years of his son Jehoshaphat. As Jehoshaphat comes into his rule, they, they share, they co, they're co-regents for the last three years. Why? Because Asa is incapable of ruling. He can't do it anymore. So Jehoshaphat comes along and, and takes the reins, and the heart of revival seems to have died in King Asa. What was lacking in Asa that was present early on? Well, you said so, Rick. It was faith, right? I think there's something else. What is lacking in the life of a Christian that allows some to settle for apathy rather than to continue to grow in passion for the Lord? What is missing there? The answer is also the key to revival. Something I missed last week as we talked about revival. And it's something that is absolutely present that we need to see. Look back at chapter 15 and verse 1. Now the Spirit of God came on Azariah the son of Obed, and he went out to meet Asa, and he said to him, Listen to me, Asa, and all Judah and Benjamin, the Lord is with you when you are with him. And if you seek him, he will let you find him, and if you forsake him, he will forsake you. Did you see it? The Spirit of God. The Spirit of God. Precious people, don't miss this. Romans chapter 8. If you want to turn there and follow me, we're going to end here. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. If you want to know how to age well, this is the deal. Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the Spirit of, what's the word? Life. You see, revival is about life. As we talked about last week, revival, to revive, is to bring something dead back to life. That's what revival means. And the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. Esau is a perfect example of that. What would the flesh do when it's under attack? Go get help. Align with a stronger force somewhere else. Seek the help of man. That's what the flesh does. But the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God. It does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Now I would say Christians who are in the flesh. When I'm in the flesh, I can't please God. When I'm functioning from a mental place or a physical place, I have trouble pleasing God because I'm thinking like a human. Instead of thinking like a child of God whose life, whose heart has been revived by His Spirit. Verse 9. However, you're not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the Spirit is alive because of righteousness. i got to say this quickly here. When you look around, what do you see in this fellowship? What do you see in people as they walk through the door? Do you see someone who is not quite as spiritual as you are? Do you realize that if someone has claimed Christ, they have the Spirit of Christ within them? Whether they are outspoken and demonstrative about it, or very quiet about it, if a person is in Christ Jesus, the very same Spirit of Christ that may empower you to your great spirituality is also in that person who may not show what you show. Why don't they show it? I don't know. Maybe the Spirit's working out something else in their life that is different than what He's doing in your life. I just say that because sometimes when we start talking about the Holy Spirit, people get judgmental. And it's very easy to start talking about Christians in terms of those who are Spirit-filled and those who aren't. Hey, if you're in Christ, guess what? Spirit-filled! Now, you may not be listening to the Spirit. You may not be moving in the Spirit. You may not be paying attention to what the Holy Spirit's saying to you. But if you are in Christ... You have the Spirit of God in you. Why is my faith so weak? Maybe because you're just not trusting in the Spirit. But He's already there. The Holy Spirit is within you, ready to be tapped at a moment's notice for defense, for healing, for protection, for grace, for peace. And all you need to do is ask Him. Listen to how powerful the Spirit is. Verse 11, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit that raised Christ is the Spirit alive in you as a child of God. Can it get any more powerful than that? And yet we struggle See, this is the spirit of revival right here. 
This is one thing we didn't say last week that I will say unequivocally today. You don't have revival without the Spirit of God. It was the Spirit of God that kicked off the revival in Judah. Verse 1 of chapter 15 tells us, The Spirit came on the prophets, who then went to Asa. And Asa believed. It was a move of the Spirit that brought about the revival that we saw last week. It is a move of the Spirit that will revive your hearts. How do I get that, Rick? Man, I'm not going to give you a five-step process to becoming more Spirit-filled. I'm just going to tell you, if you're in Christ, the Spirit is in you. And that's as simple as it gets. So what do I do? Trust Him? Give Him your whole heart? That's what Asad did not do. He did not give God his whole heart. He gave some of his heart. Give God your whole heart. The difference, listen to me, the difference between a person who ages well in the Spirit, continuing in righteousness, growing brighter and brighter and brighter until the full light of day, and the person who settles for the shadows is the presence of the Spirit of God. It's acknowledging the presence of the Spirit of God within you. If you acknowledge that presence and you lean into the Lord and trust in Him, His Spirit will grow brighter in you. Ignore His Spirit, quench His Spirit, and you're settling for the shadows. And I'm not even saying you're not saved. But you're settling for the shadows. Let me just finish out verse 12. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, but not to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. You've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. There's your answer, by the way. How do you know you're a child of God? Spirit tells you. You know. If you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, you know you belong to Him. And if you're not sure you belong to Him this morning, well, come talk to me when we're done. Let's pray for you. Let's make sure that you, you give your life to Jesus. And if children, we are heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may also be glorified with Him. Do you see that process? We suffer with Him, but the glory grows. Paul says in one place, from glory to glory, and in Romans 1, from faith to faith. It is a growing process. What Asa lacked, what anyone whose life is more into the shadows than into the brightness lacks, is the reviving Spirit of God, and all you need to do is ask. And I'm not going to, again, give you some religious prescription on how to go about this. You ask. You pray. You seek the Lord. You give Him your whole heart. And you say, Lord Jesus, I need your Spirit because I want to grow in you even when I'm old and gray. Oh God, do not forsake me until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who come. Father, we need your Spirit here. Actually, Lord, let me pray it this way. We need to be reminded that we have your Spirit here. We need awareness of your spiritual presence in our lives. We don't need to go off the deep end in some kind of radical search for something that we don't already have, that is promised to the child who gives themselves to Jesus, to the person who says, Lord, I want you to be Lord of my life. Would you, Lord, just open our eyes to your Spirit? 
and open our ears to what your Spirit is saying. And Father, open our hands and move our feet that we might move in your Spirit, led by your Spirit, empowered from face to face, growing brighter and brighter, Lord Jesus, until the full light of day when you call us home, and and even greater than that moment, when you return in absolute glory. May we continue to grow in righteousness to that day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.